0: Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air, online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Once known as Houdini for his multiple and improbable jailbreaks, Mark DeFriest was Condemned to Florida's worst prison after a lone psychiatrist reversed four court appointed psychiatrists and declared Mark was faking mental illness. Over 30 years later, Mark is still struggling to understand how to survive an original and unforgiving system while his remaining supporters forge an unlikely alliance to argue for his freedom. It is a remarkable story and it's well told, and we're fortunate enough to have with us today the director of The Mind of Mark DeFries. That would be Gabriel London. Gabriel, welcome to Film School.
1: Oh well, thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be here.
0: These are the kind of things. This this sort of a story. I just sort of brushed a uh, uh, a top the story here in terms of telling uh, what what the what this is about. So why don't you explain a little bit more about Mark? What happened? Uh, without giving too much away, we want our people to run out and uh, and check the film out. But tell us really what happened here and why Mark spent yeah, so many. Sure. Yeah, for sure.
1: And and you know when people first. Uh, hear about this story whenever they hear that somebody's in prison, they're always curious how they got there. So, let me just tell you that yeah. the, the way that Mark DeVries got to prison was when he was 19 years old. Um, his father passed away and willed to him tools. Um, Mark was a gifted mechanic. In fact, since he was uh, a, a young child at six, seven years old, he was known for rebuilding clocks, rewiring the house. Um, creating inventions uh, in his basement lab, his Frankenstein's lab, if you will. And basically, he had a, uh, a work arrangement with his father where they were um, side by side doing bridge projects, engineering of army scrap, and rebuilding machines. And basically, his father left him the tools of the trade. And he took them before the will probated from his stepmother's garage. And she said that uh, that was the wrong thing to do, called the cops. And when the cops came, Mark ran. And I think, you know, for many people, that's an indication of his um, guilt, I, th- I guess you could say. Uh-huh. But as you get to know Mark, and one of the fascinating things about him is that he is, while both very brilliant mechanically, very inept socially. Uh, he tells the same joke over and over again. He has a very hard time reading people's emotional cues. Um, and in that situation, uh, he ended up in prison, uh, didn't think he should be there, and very quickly used his mechanical mind to escape. And from there, it all just snowballed. Just he became the Houdini of Florida within about 18 months uh, and had a life sentence at the end of that. Yep. Uh, and he's still in prison today.
0: It, it, it is. Uh, it, you're right. Absolutely. The, this, the story just spirals. You keep thinking, no, this didn't happen. And, you know, how could... And then... <laughs> it's, it's amazing. It's an amazing story. I know... Um, Tell me a little bit how you, in your process, decided it was time to do a documentary. How did you find out about Mark, and then what prompted you to do this story?
1: Yeah, I mean, so this project actually took me 13 years to finish. And that was largely because research and access were such an issue. Um, You know, Mark's story was basically scattered to the winds. He had been uh, in prison when I found him uh, over 20 years um, and you know, really had no hope of getting out. So there was a big question for me as to what type of film to make. You know, this being film school radio, uh, you know, there was a real question whether I would make a feature uh, script or whether I would make a documentary. My background was in documentary, but I was just out of college. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started researching the story and. It was a story that came to me through two different channels all at once, so it also felt a little bit magical, a little bit like struck by lightning, mm-hmm. in the sense that I was doing research for a documentary on the issue of prison rape, um, and came across uh, his story in a, a newspaper article that described this draconian wing of the prison where the worst of the worst inmates were held. It was above the electric chair. It had double doors. There was no books, no magazines, no TV, no radio, um, and they also had the the unique privilege of having to smelled the people that were being executed in the electric chair beneath them. It was truly a horrific place in Florida State Prison. And it described Mark DeFries as the only nonviolent person in that unit, and that he was a nuisance and an escape artist. And I thought, well, that's interesting, but it's not specific to what I was researching. And then just the very next day, um, I was on the phone with a woman who ran an organization called Stop Prisoner Rape, and she said, I have 15 years of letters from a prison punk named Mark DeFries. And that basically charged me. I said, well, is that the same Mark Defriest who was the escape artist? And she just said, well, he might have mentioned something about that. And that, to me, was really indicative of the fact that I had two sides of a character. I had, I had some tension there that could be exploited and, disc- and, and cultivated for a story. Um, and that's when I began to develop it as a screenplay. But it was only as I really uncovered a lot of the... Uh, Records in the case, the psychological reports, that I started to feel like, well, hey, this is actually in many ways a case of wrongful imprisonment. Um, now, I didn't become an activist, and I, I'm sort of at pains to say that the story evolved because of the research and because of the characters in the film. I was never setting out to free Mark from prison. I was. I was setting out to tell Mark's story and then let audiences do what they saw fit with it. And it just happens to be a byproduct that the film has catalyzed a lot of changes in Mark's case.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, I'll, for our listeners, um, that sort of a reference in terms of documentary, uh, and I know this is a very high bar to be be uh, comparing it to, but the uh, Thin Blue Line, this feels like to me uh, in that, mm. and that I think when the, the more that you're, as you watch the film the The angrier that you get, and 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 also in some ways, the more kind of uh, not resigned, but there's a certain amount of uh, a feeling in this country that well, that's just the way things are. And you know, prison, and you know, if anyone who's in prison is somehow uh, responsible for what happened, um, completely Mm -hmm. responsible, no matter what. And but at the end of I will anyway, I'm not going to give anything more away about uh, how this story unfolds, except to say. Um, getting to know Mark um, for you, what was how, what was that initial contact? How did you get access to Mark, and then uh, a little bit about how how he reacted to you being there?
1: Yeah, for sure. You know, Mark was um, all along somebody, and that I felt comfortable sending a letter to. Um, you know, I had read his letters when, when I first wrote to him, because that was, that was, you know, how I got to know him, really, was through these incredible letters that came to me that he had been writing to, to Judith Jones, the woman who ran Stop Prisoner Rape. And when, when I just heard from him, I was living in California. He was in California prison at that time. He had been transferred out of state in Florida. And He just said, well, anytime if you want to add yourself to my visitor list, you can come up there. And that's what I did. You know, there was no possibility at the time of bringing in cameras or even a notepad into California prisons. There was no access available to me. But I I wanted to go and meet him and just, you know, get the measure of the man and tell him that I'm interested in telling a story. And he's always been so matter-of-fact. I mean, one of the fascinating things about Mark, he's, he has incredible stories, and some of them are really, they limit, they, they challenge the limits of, uh, you know, possibility of what you think is possible. Mm-hmm. And... <laughs> I was always like waiting for the other shoe to drop, like, you know, oh, come on, you jumped out of a third-story window and you, you stole a tractor trailer and you drove it to a mobile home park and then you backed over a cop car. Sure, 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 sure. Oh, you made a master key uh, that fit multiple locks in Florida State Prison. Yeah, I'm, yeah that, 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 that's incredible. I would love to see that. And then just the process of making this film has been one confirmation after another of what an incredible mind he has and what incredible things he did. And that, for me, was very cool. I had this guy that was sort of of matter-of-fact that wasn't really into casting back and telling me about all the stories of the past. It was only when I said, Mark, I'm recording this conversation. Can you tell me a little bit about 1979 that he just started on this path? And when I had when I had basically accumulated nine hours of phone conversations with him when he was switched to a new prison, that's what allowed me to do that. That's when I said, hey, I have a documentary here. Mm-hmm. And that's when I started thinking about, well, hey, how do I actually like construct this narrative that's in the past? Um, that was 2007 or eight when he started being able to call me. And I went back and I met some of the people that knew him. They were fascinating characters like Hootie and Bill, the the two mechanics that he worked with. Um, You know, I went and met his wife and, and that's when I started thinking, and you mentioned Errol Morris and Sin and Blue Line before. You know, I was always influenced by a lot of the, the atmosphere of Errol Morris' films and yeah. that feeling that he was able to create bring you into a moment. And I always felt like that was like the biggest challenge with Mark, was like, okay, yeah, we have an evolving verite story of people going back and trying to get him out of prison, but what do we do about those incredible things that he did and those choices that he had to make um, in order, you know, to survive? And, and that's a lot where animation came in. And I know that Errol Morris didn't use animation in Thin Blue Line, but in this case, you know, I, I, I had a lot more recreations that I felt I needed to do, right. and animation just felt like the right way to do it. Mark became a great illustrator in prison. There was a kind of natural comic book hero narrative that he had of the father dying and the special skills. It just felt like the right mix. So, you know, that, that was how we ended up constructing the film.
0: Continue that analogy, and that... that uh... Earl Morris used reenactments, and that's certainly. There's, you're just talking about a different variation on that particular idea, uh, with the with the animated um, approach. But I had the sense that he was he was for someone who has issues regarding uh, social interaction. He seems in the film to be pretty open, and you just described how he went on. You know, once you asked him a c- certain question, he went on and on about it about his experiences. But was there, was there hesitation for a man who'd been literally mm-hmm. abused for thirty years? How did that play in? I mean, was there some reticence on his yeah. part, or what? talk a little bit about just how I, that? I, went. I
1: wouldn't call it reticence. I would say that what Mark um, has at various moments is just almost an inability to speak. And you don't see that that much. You see it in the first interview he has with Dr. Berland, where he comes out of the solitary cell. He's been in solitary for five or six months at that point. He had had a vow of silence for two weeks prior to that. And he comes in, and he's literally wall-eyed. And I, I, if you watch the film, you'll see this. you can actually see that he his eyes are not, the muscles around his eyes are not used to looking left and right um, because he's been in a cell for so long. And... Um, it takes him a day to acclimate. You know, he slowly comes to life. If you really go back and watch those two days of interviews mm-hmm. that, we, that we did with him, you can actually see him evolving and coming out of a shell. And similarly, there's a master interview in the film that, that, that really is, is the main interview um, that, you'll, that you'll see. That's on the second day of filming. On the first day of filming, there was nothing usable. there was just he was so cagey and so um, paranoid that we just i just couldn 't get him to dialogue. We ended up talking you know and that would you know that would be an interesting side story or for the dVD so to speak but like you know we ended up he had an article tucked into his front pocket from the USA today that was just like um Something about an uh, an astronomy discovery, and it was such a fascinating insight into him. You know, he's such a curious mind. He's such a he has such a mind for for physics and mechanics and sort of like overall machines. Um, and that was an interesting insight. But that day, I couldn't get him to speak. He is very matter of fact, though. So when we were talking about the most traumatic aspects of his incarceration, he was just very. He wasn't like didn't trip up on it. He just said, "Yeah, they tried to torture me." Or, or you know, basically, yeah, that's how it all went down. But he he wasn't, he doesn't expand on that the same way he'll expand on some of his prouder accomplishments. I guess you could say as an escape artist or inventing a radio in the prison that he could hide. You know, he yeah. he's proud of certain things and avoids other things.
0: Yeah. Well, one of my listeners who are speaking with Gabriel London, he is the producer and director of the film The Mind of Mark DeFriest. I want to focus on a couple of things regarding Mark again. It, 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 I I think we've not really given due credit to his uh. Uh, so far i mean you you mentioned all the things he's invented and he's obviously a very capable mind he's an exceptionally bright person uh, i don't know what he has he ever been tested in an iq i, I don't even I don't know
1: yes he has and and you know i don't have it in front of no, me it's but it he has a very high iq he you know he's he is tr- truly brilliant, and people have come out of the woodwork since the film came out. Guards that, that knew him, um, a guy that ran the jail at Leon County Jail when he escaped from Ted Bundy's escape-proof cell, and just <laughs> given me testimony to the fact that he was so brilliant, yet they felt so, he was so broken by the death of his father. So there's been an interesting corroboration of both his emotional problems and his mechanical gifts. And I, you know, like, I think that's the tension in the film. Yeah. It's kind of the exciting thing is that when people look at it, they go, oh, he's so smart. Why couldn't he just figure out how to get out of prison? And I think the, 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 the story actually then shows you that a lot of the emotional things that he was lacking made him have a much harder time. Just making up good time and walking out the door on parole. Yeah, um, yeah. But he started to come around and he started to learn. And the you know storytelling is a true catalyst for for change. Um, and we saw that over the 13 years of making the film, and we're seeing it now as the film goes out to audiences, as they're reacting and things are changing in his case.
0: Yeah, and and I and I can't. I, I'll just I can't help but believe that uh, this experience. In dealing with you and in, in interacting with you and, and hearing and knowing this story is being told hasn't been a, a huge boost to his own sense of f- his own future, a, a brighter future. Yeah. So um, for that, that's sort of a byproduct of this wonderful film, but I can't help but think that it, it's had that kind of a positive impact on him.
1: Yeah. I mean, attention from another individual is kind of like a light in a dark world and and the camera in that sense uh also functioned in that way. And so yeah, it's it's been a it's been a privilege and an honor to tell this story and it's just so exciting to finally share it with audiences.
0: Now, Gabriel, how how many years total did uh Mark DeFries spend in solitary confinement?
1: So Mark has spent 27 of the last 34 years of his incarceration in solitary. He spent literally decades in Florida State Prison's X-Wing and was not even granted the regular one-hour-a-week exercise. We substantiate in the film all of this, including uh, 10 years of grievances that he filed requesting to be allowed to go outside and being denied. And again, that was because Mark was a management problem, not because he was a violent inmate. He was not known for attacking other inmates. He was known for infuriating guards, for saying, his name wrong at Count for having escape tools. So he's a sort of fascinating portrait of how the prison system just managed him with the most draconian type of punishment um, and calls into question whether that's really the right way to deal with people who have you know, repeated um, kind of mental problems that cause them to do things. Really, punishment for his symptoms is a lot of what I think we see in his story.
0: Yeah, and I want to go back up once again. We're speaking with Gabriel Linda, the director producer of the film, The Mind of Mark Defreeze. I, I want to go back to uh, the help you were able to enlist with one of. I mentioned at the top of the uh, the, the interview, of the uh, four of the five psychiatrists to examine Mark way back in his initial trial. Uh, said that he was suffering from some some form of mental illness. The one psychiatrist who who said, no, he's faking. Uh, tell, tell us a little bit about him and how he came back into uh, Mark's life.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, the film really explores, I think, the theme of redemption, of people being able to say, I'm sorry, and then be forgiven for their mistakes. And, and that really starts with Dr. Berland. I mean, it was one of the most unbelievable things when... When when it came down to it, when I pulled all those psych files and I went through all the different reports, what was very clear was there were four doctors that made it very um very much their point to keep him out of prison because he was they saw him as being mentally incompetent to be sentenced. And then there was one doctor, Dr. Berland, who said he was faking. And it, I thought that was so fascinating. So I went and I got Dr. Berlin on the phone and I said, I'm making a movie about a guy named Mark DeFriest and he goes, Oh, and I said, well, do, do you remember Mark DeFries? He said, nobody would ever forget Mark DeFries. I said, well, he's been in prison for the last 30 years, and he cut me off. And he said, if, if he's been in prison all those years, then I must have made a mistake. And it was kind of at that point where I was like, man, I, this, this is unbelievable. I might actually have, you know, a moving story that is not just historical, but that actually comes back to life. Yeah. He ends up connecting with Mark's lawyer, and uh, he, uh, because of that, he goes back to interview Mark and do new psychological reports. And he, in that, in that way, is actually reopens um, one of the mistakes of his past. I mean, I wish in this country there was more comfort in evaluating, uh, on a political level, people who, who make big public decisions like Dr. Berlin, but also going up the chain, the willingness to sort of reevaluate what people have done with their decisions and, and, and potentially say, hey, I made a mistake. I think we'd, we'd save ourselves a lot of trouble and a lot of repeated mistakes if we acknowledge them. Anyway, so he goes back and he, did, he does that. New psychological report on Mark, and that really catalyzes everything in the story. Um, it it's it's essential that Berlin made that move first, and 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 then I think you see Mark actually move right back to to accept his apology and, and move forward. So I think you know you really do see um, what's possible when, when people communicate with each other. That reconciliation exists um and can be encouraged.
0: That's an electrifying moment in the film when uh, Dr. Berlin sits down with with Mark and asks him, "Do you remember me?" I mean I I'm not going to say anything more. I just it's an emotional scene certainly, knowing knowing the arc of the story. This this the uh this a tremendously moving encounter and uh you know, yeah, you're absolutely right. I can I completely agree with you. If we had a little more introspection and retrospective uh, um, approach to especially prison issues. I've been dealing with this outside of my work here at uh, with film school for years. Uh, this criminal justice system and prison system is is a nightmare, and it it is desperate need of reform. And incarceration in this country is in and of itself a, a crime against many, many, many people who do not belong in prison. Um, it's it's staggering. It really is.
1: Yeah, but you're seeing a wave. You're seeing a wave of change uh, that, that's right. happening. A lot of different, um, a lot of different reform efforts are underway right now at the prisons, and it and it starts with with I think the public understanding the narratives of people who are being unfairly targeted and unfairly treated in the in in the prison and criminal justice systems.
0: Well. Yeah, and and I mean, this is a whole rabbit hole we could go down in terms of just the, all the different things. I mean, here in California, you know, well, mandatory sentencing. I think when you start talking drug policy and mandatory sentencing are the two key elements in where we went way off the rails in this country. Uh, and then when you start talking about privatization of prisons and the, the profit motive and keeping people in jail, it's just. It gets worse and worse and worse, and then of course the racial component. It it it's such a multi-layered. To un, unscrew this particular, um, you know, institution in our country is going to take a while, but it takes concerted effort and and a recognition on the part of the of the public that this is not working at all. So. But, you know,
1: I think it's also worth just saying that the film is a story first about an incredible yes. character. Yes. You know, and that I, I, my approach to, I guess, what you could say big issues isn't necessarily to do a big inventory film that sort of focuses right. on a bunch of different characters who... who who shine a light on a problem, I just felt like Mark's story needed to be told. Yeah, you know, it's no. just like, the dude's just wild, you know, he's like a fascinating character. Yeah. I think the the jury's out in some senses, it's all about the the audience looking at him, and I think making up their own mind of what they think should, should happen in Mark's case, and should have happened, and you know, the, it has run the yeah. gamut of reactions. I mean, I think, yeah. you know, by and large, people can go in there and feel like, they're going to see a movie about a really fascinating individual, yeah. but also be experiencing the depths and the darkness of the American prison system. And so it's like, you know, his story is both, um, you know, fodder for for storytelling, but, you know, it's also fodder for conversations about policy. And I, that marriage of the two, for me, is why I spent 13 years telling the story. Yeah, I just feel like there aren't that many... Bites of the apple like that, where you can actually get get so much in one story.
0: And and you're absolutely, I couldn't agree more with you in this regard. That that is the the beauty, the power of, of storytelling is its ability to uh, showcase something that is very relatable, very much a part. Uh, Mark is a very relatable person. Uh, seems to be a despite everything, a person who's still willing to continue to try uh, to make himself better and to try and figure out what his future uh, could be and then you, you have mm-hmm. what you said is described as sort of the macro the 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 larger picture which is which is what this uh, film is 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 opens that door and uh, uh, Gabriel I also want to ask you about you, you touched on it earlier about the relationship that uh, Mark had with his father obviously the the most important um, relationship in his in his early life tell, tell us a little bit about, in addition to being a master mechanic, there were other skills that, quote unquote, served Mark later in life. Um, tell us a little bit about his father and his background.
1: Yeah, I think you you could say that Mark's proudest thing about himself is that he's a survivor. That he survived like a completely inhospitable environment in prison. That he never joined a gang in order to survive. That he managed to be kind of like a lone. Uh, lone survivor uh, if you will in in the prison system and a lot of that comes from things he learned from his dad Um, his dad and he had a very close relationship he was an only child Um, we have photos of him at like one two years old helping his dad one year old build his swing set and then swing in his swing set you see Mark holding a wrench yeah. The film, you know, opens with a wrench uh, as well. You know, there's, a, there's, there's, this wrench belonged to Mark DeFreeze, you know, and it, the guy that knew Mark 25 years before has been holding on to it since then. Yeah. So there was this bond between between men, between father and son, and then between, you know, the, the folks that knew Mark and worked with him side by side that really was tied to building of machines, that was tied to, you know, the ability to sort of use tools and use, like, uh, knowledge of the wild, I guess you could say, in order to survive. And, you know, Mark was trained in gunmanship from a very, very young age. Um, he, had a, he was given a gun as a gift when he was eight years old. Uh, he was a very good sh- uh, shot. He always had guns, but they were gun collectors. And I think it's really worth noting that multiple times, you know, Mark had opportunities to use guns to kill people, and he never did. He, he 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 never physically harmed another individual with a gun. He used guns coercively, guns that he made in prison, um, and you know he. But he never actually harmed another individual, and I think that comes back to his relationship with his father. A lot of what they had was a type of moral code. His dad was some type of OSS agent the predecessors to the CIA he you know he really taught him about the red menace and the communists would be coming and he sort of planted in mark's head this idea that there would be an oppositional narrative in his life that there would be people who would you know be going against him and he would just have to navigate through their world and in a way Mark has been living as a stranger in a strange land, a stranger in a strange land that I think his father had sort of described to him from the time he was five, six, seven years old. Um, but as Mark says very funnily, uh, you know, uh he tells him all about communists but he hasn't seen a, a uh, he hasn't seen a communist yet. You know what I'm saying? So he's he's been prepared for this invasion, but in fact, uh the invasion has been the fact that he's been in prison for thirty four years.
0: This is just such a an amazing film. Um, once again, it's the mind of Mark DeFriest, um and it is opening. You said at the uh, the Lemley Music Hall in Be- it's Beverly Hills. Am, am I correct? That's you know, yes, it is Music on Hall. Wilshire Boulevard. Right there, it's a beautiful little theater. Uh, hosts, <laughs> it really is a nice place, and they they host uh, a lot of a lot of wonderful films, including this one. And it's also opening in New York. Um, as well obviously since we're on the interweb uh so anyone listening uh to the sound of my voice uh in new york uh what's the uh, the theater in new york
1: so we're also playing in the village east in new york village east. and all this can be found we have a, a website that's yes. just defreece.com and i know that the tickets for this weekend in new york and la are available on fandango so oh. that's you know it's very easy for people to pick up tickets and and go down and see it. In New York, we're organizing a lot of different screenings with speakers as well. So for people who are interested, all of our 7 p.m. screenings throughout the week, we'll we'll have featured speakers, including myself, most nights, um, doing Q&A and speaking about issues of the day.
0: And you're in town?
1: In New York. I wish I could say I would be back in L.A., my old hometown, but I, alas, will not be.
0: But that's okay. But then from there, you said uh, it's opening, as you said, in Washington, D.C., as well. And and hopefully we get some some, uh, influencers into uh, some of these uh, screenings as well in Washington, D.C.
1: Yeah, amen to that. Yeah, we'll be at the West End in D.C. from the 13th to the 19th. And we have actually screenings with the Brennan Center of Justice in New York and... D.C., and we have screenings with the Constitution Project um, and with a number of, an ACLU, a number of different experts in the field um, who can sort of shed a light on some of, the, some of the background and the context and how we move forward from Mark's story. And that's a big focus for me. It's like, you know, the story, you know, can, can be leveraged for good, you know, and, and that's a big part of having these conversations moving forward.
0: Yeah, uh, so again, the, the website is defriest, uh, dot com.
1: Yeah, that's correct, defreece.com, and we have, of course, our requisite Facebook page uh, and uh, Twitter, which is at DeFreeze Film and facebook.com forward slash film So okay, hope so. people find us and, and follow along with this evolving story, because that's the other piece that people should know. It's yeah. it's still growing and moving in new mysterious
0: ways. Uh, D-E-F-R-I-E-S-T dot com, defreece.com, and check this out, and uh, I am... Thank you. I'm so thankful you were able to find time to be here today. This is, a, this is an amazing story, uh, and it is exceptionally well told, and I am honored to have you on. I know you uh, must be working on other things, and I'm, I'm hopeful that when the time comes, you'll be able to come back and, and join us on Film School. Thank you.
1: Well, thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Appreciate it.